0: Morning, everybody. I found it really interesting that the lyrics that we just sang in that song cry out for the presence of the Holy Spirit and say, Your presence, Lord, in the same sentence. That's significant to what we want to talk about in the sermon. And We're just going to jump in here, all right? Last week, we talked about... Anybody remember, like, one thing that we talked about last week? Cherry tomatoes. We talked about cherry tomatoes. We talked about the sovereignty of God. And we talked about the difference between the manifest and omnipresence of the Lord. Right? Does anybody now remember anything we talked about last week that's encouraging to me all right today we're going to start we're, we're moving our way through this book of john and today we have made it all the way up to john chapter 13 but we already covered john 13 1 to 17 way back in april and if you guys couldn't remember what we talked about last week you probably don't remember what we talked about in april but we did okay if you, wanted, if you don't believe me, I think it's part 8 in this series. We talked about these first 17 verses, and so we're going to skip past those, and we're going to start from verse 18 today. We're going to read from John 13, 18 to 30, and then I want to scoop in a couple of verses from John chapter 14, verses 7 to 10. I know it's not exactly linear, but I want to grab those and scoop them in there, okay? So that's what we're going to do this morning, and I'm going to ask my friend Jeremiah to come up and read that passage for us, and then we're going to launch into the sermon. I know, Jer- come on up, I know Jeremiah to be, I know lots of good things about Jeremiah, but specifically, he is a very good evangelist and a very passionate follower of Jesus.
1: Hello. So, yeah, there's some words on the screen. Uh, actually, I could just read off of that then. I'm not referring to all of you. I know those who I've chosen. But this is to fulfill this passage of Scripture. He's, he who shared my bread has turned against me. I am telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe I am who I am. Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts accepts me. And whoever accepts me accepts the one After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, Very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another and at a loss to know which one he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, Ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, "What are you about to do? What are you, about, what you're about to do? Do it quickly." But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas was charge of the money, some thought that Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. If you really know me, and this is in chapter 14, if you really know me, you will know my father. You will know as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you for such a long time? Anyone who has seen me, how can you say, show us the father? Don't you believe that I am in the father and that the father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Thank you.
0: Today's sermon is going to be a reminder. Do you guys like reminders? <laughs> Depends what the reminder is about, right? Reminders are not always very exciting, but they are necessary. And today feels to me like one of those sermons that. I don't know, I guess sometimes as somebody who uh, get, has a chance to preach, sometimes it, it's so exciting to tell people about a new thing and to imagine this, right? And yet, today's sermon is very much a reminder, but that's not something to be embarrassed about or ashamed about. It's very necessary and important. It's actually one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit. He's also a reminder. I don't think he's embarrassed about that. Peter said to his followers, he, he, to the people that were listening to him, he said he was going to make every effort to remind them and refresh their memory so that once he was gone, they would still remember, right? It's important, right? Right? <laughs> Thanks. Let me, let me just pray. Lord, I just as we uncover your word, Lord Jesus, I just pray that you would fill us with an anticipation and an enthusiasm for your word, that we would suck it in and we would just want more of it. Lord, speak to us powerful truths, even in the reminders, that we would recognize then what these reminders are for. In your precious name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. So here's what I want to say. As we go through this reminder sermon If you're hearing things that you already knew and you're like, oh, yawn, I've already heard that before, ask yourself, don't dismiss it, but ask yourself how you're applying it to your life and if you are applying it to to your life. Those are good questions. Let's go. So here, we're just going to touch on two things this morning. And the first one is Judas' betrayal. I think we all are familiar with that story, but I just want to go back to... John thirteen eighteen John thirteen where it says this. Jesus said, "I'm not referring to all of you. I know those have chosen. But this is to fulfill this passage of scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I am telling you now, before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am." Jesus knew before it happened. That he was going to be betrayed by one of his twelve closest chosen followers. And he even used that to tell something to his disciples. He used that opportunity at one of many things, he used that opportunity to show them that that even that part of the event of what was about to happen had been prophesied about in the Old Testament which reaffirms that the Old Testament is actually God's anointed word. You with me? Jesus shows them this in advance so that instead of becoming disillusioned when it happens, it will actually confirm again to them that Jesus is actually truly the Son of God. He's the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. He's the sent one. He's the Messiah. He's our Savior. Amen? And here's a simple truth. I think you guys already knew that, but I'm just going to tell you a simple truth in case you need a reminder. The New Testament tells us all about Jesus. And that goes back about 2,000 years ago when he walked on this planet, right? And if you imagine that time in history as being right here in the middle, that's the time of Jesus. And when you're reading through your Bible, if this was the Old Testament... And that's the New Testament. As you're reading through your Bible, do you realize that the entire Old Testament all points to Jesus? All the books of Moses, which is the law, including all the Psalms and the writings even of Solomon and the prophets, they're all pointing to Jesus. Every book does. They're all pointing to Jesus. That's why Jesus can quote the Psalms and it's pointing back to him. And guess what happens when you read the New Testament? A lot of it's written. The Gospels would be maybe right during Jesus' time. But then the the rest of the New Testament is written after Jesus. And guess where it's pointing? Back to Jesus. The entire Bible points to Jesus. That's an important thing to remember, especially when you're reading through portions of Scripture. Then you wonder, why is that in the Old Testament? It is there to point you to Jesus. And if you don't understand it, maybe there's something you need to learn just about the different covenants that are given in Scripture that all build on top of each other, leading us to Jesus. But the entire Old Testament points that way, and the New Testament points back. You have this entire book that talks all about Jesus. Which, of course, is actually an apologetic argument, right? What's, what's, uh, what's an apologetic argument? It's actually using, using a discussion or using a proof that would indicate that what we believe in Scripture is actually true and you can make those arguments without even opening the Bible. Just knowing about the Bible for instance or uh, for what we see around us. But listen to this. So if we understand that the whole Bible is pointing to Jesus, this is a fascinating thing. That the Bible was written over a period of about 1,500 years. By over, by 40 or More different authors from every different way, walk of life, some from the richest kings to the poorest paupers. There was, they many of them did not even know of each other, they wrote from different continents over a period of 1500 years. And who are they all talking about? Jesus, that's compelling. So just on the very simplest, simplest way of understanding Scripture, okay? Try to imagine. Never, ne- never mind, there, there's so many things you could add to that. All the kings and rulers that tried to uh, destroy the Bible and get rid of it when there was only a few copies of it. Handwritten copies. Never mind all that, but just think about this. Imagine going home this afternoon and trying to recreate something like that. Imagine that you would just, in the simplest form, you would start writing some things out on a piece of paper that would make a prophetic uh, prediction about somebody who was going to come in several hundred years from now, and you would be able to tell accurately how his life was going to go. Try that. You know how useless that's going to feel? That's going to feel really impossible. Now just imagine that this would have to go on for 1,500 years and 40 people, most of whom you didn't even know and didn't call to say, hey, I wrote this thing about this guy, you should write the same thing. Most of them didn't even know each other. And yet they wrote about the same guy. Add to that that there's miraculous things that happen in there. It's not just that, oh, on this day, I bet you this guy's going to go to Superstore or something. Like, No, it's miraculous things that this person will actually be God, be born in a miraculous nature, and that list goes on and on and on. You're going to realize how impossible that is. That's an apologetic argument, and we can be thankful that we have this book, which tells us all about Jesus, and we desire His presence. Amen? Let's read verse 27 of chapter 13 because I think that can be a little bit of a troubling verse. And I just want to park on there for a little bit. So this is in regards to Judas betraying Jesus. And Jesus does this thing where he takes this piece of bread and he dips it in the bowl and then he hands it to Judas. Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. That's the person who will betray him. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. If this was the only verse that we would read about this encounter, we might actually be left with this thought of, man, what if Judas hadn't taken that bread? Could it have been different? Or some might even question, did Jesus have sinister motives in doing that? Did he, is Jesus the one who initiated the evilness of what happened there? But that's not the case. Because if we look at verse 2 in the same chapter, now we read this months ago, and so I've got to refresh our memory here, but if we read verse 2 in that same chapter, talks about that same evening it says the evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas the son of Simon Iscariot to betray Jesus so very simply put we might not know every reason why things had to happen in that order and in that way but we would be making a huge mistake to question the good and perfect character of Jesus Amen? And I want to talk a little bit about the inseparable triune God. We read some verses last week that would reinforce exactly what we're talking about this week. And last week I mentioned, I said that we're going to put some of those into the sermon this week, likely. And this is what we are doing exactly that. But we're going to launch this discussion about the inseparable triune God. What, what does it mean that there's a triune God? Somebody just, I wanted to make sure that we know what we're talking about. Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three persons of God, but there's only one God. Okay? And we're going to launch this discussion from just one verse, and I'm going to leave it up there the whole time. Because this verse is a gripping verse, and it says, Very truly, I tell you, Whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. There are basically three people, or perhaps groups of people, that are presented in this verse, and we're just going to talk about who they are, because it's a very powerful truth. Question number one, okay? We're going to discover those three. You guys with me? Question number one. Who is the I or the me in this verse? Jesus. That's not a very hard question, right? The verse is in red. Okay? We got that figured out. Part one is done. That's Jesus talking. We know that it's Jesus. Question number two. Who is, the very end says, uh, accepts, if you accept me, that's Jesus, accepts, it says, the one who sent me. Who's the one who sent him? The Father. Okay, so we already know. It didn't take very long either, right? We know that that represents the Father. And this didn't take long to get there, but I want to park on that point for a little bit and really emphasize something. It says, if I'm to paraphrase, it says, whoever accepts Jesus accepts the Father. That's not something just to quickly read and say, oh yeah, it's the Trinity, da-da-da. That's powerful and has implications for our life. Let me just reinforce that with a whole bunch of other scripture because this is a profound thing and I'll tell you why we're going to pound that away here, okay? We're going to go through some of these scriptures pretty quick, but John 12:44 says this, whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. You can see that connection from Jesus to the Father. In John 12:45 he says the one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. We just read that. Last week, John 14:7 he says if you really know me you will know my father as well. From now on you do know him and have seen him. 14:9 says anyone who has seen me has seen the father. And Jesus even said he who hates me hates my father as well. And you could He's using very strong language, but you could even soften that, and it would be the same thing. He who minimizes me minimizes my father. He who doesn't like me doesn't like my father. He who's lukewarm towards me is lukewarm towards my father. Do you get what he's saying? Verse John two twenty three makes this really clear, and says, "No one who denies the Son has the Father." Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Jesus is like the hinge point. How you treat Jesus is how you're treating the Father. If you're loving and worshipping Jesus, you are worshipping the Father. And if you, if you are dismissing Him, you are dismissing the Father. Do you see how we get there from Scripture? Scripture. There are many other passages that indicate that the Father and Son are inseparable because they are one. In fact, Colossians 1:16 just as an example of many says that the, the universe was created through Jesus. Everything that has been created was created through Jesus. And Genesis one, or the beginning of Genesis 1:1 says in the beginning God And that word God is actually Elohim, which means it's a plural word, it's a plural name actually, which doesn't mean there are more than one God, but it means that God is more than one person. It's already alluding to Jesus being included as one member of the three persons equal in the Trinity. Right back from Genesis 1, and guess what the last verse in Revelations is talking about? Jesus. The entire Bible talks about him, and he is equal with the Father. He and the Father are one. What's the point? This is where you're like, okay, yeah, I know, that's a, that's a reminder. What's the point? Jesus and God the Father are one. When people got to see, hear, and touch Jesus 2,000 years ago, they were actually getting to see glimpses of the Father. They were seeing God in action. Jesus did nothing apart from what God the Father told him to do. They were unanimous. You cannot separate Jesus from God. You cannot say, I love Jesus, and ignore God the Father because they're one and the same. You can't, neither can you deny Jesus as being Messiah, Savior, our Savior and at the same time claim to worship God, the Father. Does that make sense? In fact, this is an easy way to discern false religions. Any religion or belief that minimizes Jesus to anything less than him actually being God, the Lord, Messiah, sent one, savior of the world, creator of the world, any religion or belief that would minimize him below that, is a false religion. But you and I already knew that, and so what's the point of saying that to you guys here in the church? There is a pressure on the church to say that maybe those other religions are actually worshiping the same God even though they're minimizing Jesus. That simply is not true. They are not... Any religion that minimizes Jesus from actually being God and Savior and Messiah is not worshiping the same God because the God we worship is a triune God of which Jesus Christ is one of three equal persons of. Amen? Amen? Based on the Bible, any any religion that minimizes Jesus to being only a good person or only a prophet is obviously false. And so we need to love and be good neighbors to anybody who thinks that way, just like we need to love and be good neighbors to an atheist or somebody who doesn't believe at all. But we have to not allow that thinking to trickle into the church. Does that make sense? This brings us to a much trickier question from this same verse. And I want to ask you this Who is the anyone I send? Jesus said, Whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me. We already know that to accept Jesus and the Father, is what they're one together. But here he says, Whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me. Who is the anyone I send? Somebody said the Holy Spirit. And some would say maybe it was the disciples. If the disciples were telling people about the gospel, and if people accepted their word, then they'd also be accepting Jesus. And so let's just flush this out a little bit because I think those answers are both correct, but it's going to bring us back to a common place about the Holy Spirit very clearly. Let's just dig into this a little bit, okay? In Matthew 28, Jesus said this. He said, "All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations." So clearly, he is sending his disciples to go. He is sending them, right? So in that sense, you could say they are the ones that Jesus would say. They could be included in that group of anyone I send because they've been sent by Jesus. And if people would accept their word when they talk about Jesus, they'd be accepting Jesus. And we can see this when Jesus appeared to his disciples in the end of John 20, he said something similar. He said, it says again, uh, Jesus said, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, "Receive the Holy Spirit." This is a fascinating thing, because Jesus is clearly sending his disciples, and if people believe their message, they will be accepting Jesus. And that trickles down actually to you and me, because we're also commissioned to go make disciples. And if we talk about Jesus, people believe you're my message about Jesus, they're also accepting Jesus. However, when someone hears the gospel message, their response is not primarily to the person that spoke it. Their response is actually to the Holy Spirit. Because nobody can even say, based on Scripture, we know this in 1 Corinthians 12, it says, nobody can even say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And so when people respond to that message, they are actually responding to the Holy Spirit. And you see exactly that connection in this verse. He sent them out to talk about, to tell other people the gospel message, but he coupled it together with the promised gift of the Holy Spirit, which they would receive in full measure a few days later. But somebody mentioned, when I asked the question, who is the one anyone i send someone said the holy spirit and so if you said that the anyone refers directly to the holy spirit you are also very correct because in john 16 jesus said this unless i go away the advocate that's a name for the holy spirit will not come to you but if i go i will send him to you so clearly Right after John 13, we get into a a number of chapters where Jesus says, I am sending you the Holy Spirit. And some might go, well, hold on a second. Didn't the Father send the Holy Spirit? And we could start to play this game. It's a little bit of a tricky game because now we're diving into what the Trinity means, right? But let's just uncover this a little bit. John 14, verse 26. It is true, actually. Jesus said, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. You're starting to uncover the beautifulness of the Trinity, actually, but you could say the Father sent the Holy Spirit, and you would be correct. Or as John 15, 26 says, when the Advocate comes, whom I will send, who will send? I, Jesus. Jesus. To you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me, but who sent him? Jesus. I think it's pretty clear that Jesus clearly takes credit for sending the Holy Spirit. And secondly, if we're going to try and navigate who sent the Holy Spirit, Jesus or the Father, we just spend a good portion of the sermon explaining that you cannot separate the Father and the Son. Amen? Amen? That's the definition of a false religion, actually. And so I think it's fair to say that the anyone I send in John 13, 20 not only refers to the disciples, but equally, if not more importantly, to the Holy Spirit. Now this... Let me just present something else to you that I think you will know is true. The Holy Spirit is God. In the same way that the Father is God, in that Jesus Christ, the Son, is God, the Holy Spirit is God. Is anybody shocked by that statement? I think we all know that. There's many scriptures that describe the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit working together in perfect unity to make up the triune God. But I want to show you a few just a small fraction of them to make it clear that the Holy Spirit is actually God. First of all, I mentioned before that the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, and the very last verse in Revelations talks about Jesus. It's a beautiful thing. But do you also realize that the first few verses in the Bible talk about the Holy Spirit as do the last few verses in the Bible talk about the Holy Spirit? in the beginning the spirit was hovering over the waters right in the beginning we already see that and in the very end we see that the spirit and the, the spirit and the bride say come passages like 1 Corinthians 6:11 actually tell us that the sanctification process and the justification process that we know comes through Jesus also comes through the holy spirit Passages like John 16: seven to 14, Jesus describes the Holy Spirit as He, him, at least seven different times. Why does Jesus refer to the Holy Spirit as he and him? Because he is a... I think someone said it. A person, He's one of the three persons of the Trinity. Just like the Father is a person, Jesus is a person, the Holy Spirit is a person of the Trinity. He is not just a force. He is not just an energy that comes from God. He is God. For instance, when Peter called out Ananias for lying, remember that story in Acts chapter 5, Ananias was lying and it cost him his life? Peter called them out for lying to God, and he told him in the same breath that he had lied to God. He had lied to the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is God. And he says both. You can read it. you can test it. You can read this for yourself if you want. That's Acts five: three to four. Many times in Scripture the Holy Spirit is referred to as the spirit of God, and he's also referred to as the spirit of Jesus or the Spirit of Christ. Just as an example, the Spirit of Jesus in Acts 16, Philippians 1, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, 1 Peter, the Spirit of Christ in them. And so then it makes sense that when somebody accepts Jesus as their Lord and Savior, they receive the Holy Spirit automatically at that same time. Because anyone who is a Christian has the Holy Spirit. That's why Romans 8 verse 9 says this, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they don't belong to Christ because they're synonymous. The Holy Spirit and Jesus come together. Let me slow down just a little bit here. Remember how we said that you cannot separate Jesus the Son from the Father? Neither can you separate Jesus the Son from the Holy Spirit. For instance, let me read you 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It says, Now, read those yellow words one more time with me. It says, Now, the Lord is the spirit who do you think it's referring to when it says the Lord it's a specific reference actually to Jesus many many times in the New Testament in the Old Testament if it was all in caps you would know it was a a name for Yahweh which also is Jesus the Father and the Holy Spirit But in the New Testament, when it says the words, the Lord, it's a specific reference to Jesus, the Son. It says, now, the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. Is there freedom in Jesus? If the Son sets you free, what's going to happen? You're going to be free indeed. Indeed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is also freedom, because the Spirit and Jesus are synonymous. They're one. You cannot separate them, and we, who with unveiled faces, contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is not to say that Jesus the Lord and the Holy Spirit have the same roles to play. They have differing roles within the Trinity. That's important to understand they are not blended so much that that they don't have differing roles. they do have differing roles. but I want to it's important to understand passages like this so that we don't try to separate the Holy Spirit from Jesus or Jesus from the Father. It's important that we do not try to separate or minimize any one person of the Trinity. And so what's the point to all this? Remember how there is a pressure on the church to tolerate minimizing Jesus from His rightful place as an equal person of the Trinity? It's actually a sign of a false religion. There is also a pressure on the church to minimize the Holy Spirit from His rightful place as an equal person of the Trinity. We would never say that, right? We would never say that in our typically there's a few of us here that are maybe not quite as Mennonite as the rest of us and I'm so thankful that you're here we, we are in desperate need of some spice in here but from we have this, we would never say that we, many of us who have grown up in the church know this so well, we would never say anything but that we serve a triune God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We just say those we would never say that. The Bible's way too clear. However, I wonder if perhaps without realizing it, the words Holy Spirit come quickly on our lips, but in practice he is minimized. An openness to the working of the Holy Spirit is not just for pastors or elders or missionaries in Africa or Afghanistan or Iraq. An openness to the Holy Spirit, and I'm just, I'm not making this stuff up. This is from a biblical perspective An openness and a dependence on the working of the Holy Spirit is for everybody who considers themselves a believer in Jesus because you have the Holy Spirit. He's a gift and He's for everyone. He's for moms and dads. You don't have to have a specific ministry title. He's for moms and dads and construction workers and teachers and farmers, old people, young people, everyone. If you look up the most common passages that, let's say, talk about gifts of the Holy Spirit, spiritual gifts, maybe like 1 Corinthians 12 or Ephesians 4 or Romans 12, you will, in all of those passages, it says words like, each one has these. To everyone, these are given. Each member, each. It keeps saying that word, each and every. What does that mean? It's all inclusive. Every believer is designed and it's intended. God's intention is for every believer to be very open to the workings of the Holy Spirit like that. Now, let's, let me ask you a question Do the gifts of the Holy Spirit make you uncomfortable? Let's just be honest. Do the gifts of the Holy Spirit make you uncomfortable? I heard, so I heard an I can that's a good answer. I heard a no that's also a good answer. I think that's I think that's fair I think it's fair to say that I, they can right and, and perhaps for a good reason, especially those gifts that seem like they're more of a miraculous nature because several of them have been abused, misused, falsely claimed, and practiced without love. I get it. And that isn't a new problem. Paul rebuked the Corinthian church for exactly doing that. But if we now say, because there's been misuse and abuse, and maybe they've been practiced without love or practiced incorrectly or however we want to term that, if we now say, well, then I'm just going to throw out the baby with the bathwater, so to speak, don't we become guilty of resisting and quenching one of the persons of the Trinity? And that's not a new problem either because Paul told the church in Thessalonica. Look at what he told them. He said, do not quench the Spirit. Why do you think Paul had to tell them that? Because they were doing it or maybe tempted to do it. And this is not an optional instruction. This is not something just for a chandelier swinging crazy Christians. This is for every Christian. It's actually a command to all of Jesus' followers to not resist or quench or put out the fire of the Holy Spirit. Jesus sent him as a gift. He's the spirit of Jesus If if he is the spirit of Jesus, how do you think Jesus feels when you quench his spirit? Do you think Jesus is somehow thinking, oh, well, at least they're not quenching me? Why do I say this? (laughs) why do why are we even talking about this in our church and i'll say this is this is exactly how i see it there's two things going on here on one hand we see that there has been abuse and misuse and neglect of spiritual gifts that's a problem And the Bible clearly says that we are to eagerly desire these gifts. And that's, now how do you marry this? It actually forces us into a place where we need to address this in the church. Like in this church. So we're going to get really practical about it. In the next week or two, you're going to hear me talk a little bit more about this, but I can tell you already, we're going to talk about, for whoever is interested, a safe and biblical way that we as a church could investigate, learn, Discover, open the door to the workings of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus. Kind of like that church in Laodicea in Revelations 3, they were a Christian church, they were Jesus' followers, and yet Jesus was exhorting them to open the door to closer fellowship with him. That's what we want to do, actually, isn't it? Just open the door to closer fellowship. Maybe it's closer fellowship with His Spirit. That's no different than having closer fellowship with Jesus. Remember the words that we sang in that song? Holy Spirit, we desire Your presence. Lord, we desire Your presence. Who's the Lord? It's Jesus. We're opening the door to Jesus you might be asking, okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. Are we introducing something new to Pansy Chapel or why are we doing this? Why are we doing something new? It's it's actually not new. First of all, besides the fact that this is based on Scripture, which was, was about 2,000 years old, the Holy Spirit is not new to Pansy Chapel. Amen? I know this because many of you have already experienced Him Inside this church he has been there's been evidences of the holy spirit here for 60 years. Secondly, we're working our way through a series of messages on the book of John and we are in John chapter 13. Which chapters do you think are coming next? 14, 15 and 16. And guess what they talk, guess what Jesus talks about in chapters 14, 15 and 16. Guess who Jesus talks about in chapters 14, 15 and 16? The Holy Spirit. we actually can't avoid him, or at least we shouldn't. And so if this makes you nervous, I'm just going to throw out a suggestion. Be like a Berean believer you know what a Berean believer does? They eagerly receive the message, but then they go home like an everyday, they examine the Scriptures to see if what that guy said was true. And so I would encourage you to do this. You could read John 14, 15, and 16 and just see if Jesus expects his followers to encounter the Holy Spirit in a very relevant way. Just check. You could also read about what the fruit of the Holy Spirit is in Galatians 5. You could also read about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14, Romans 12, Ephesians 4. But we must be sure that we accept anyone whom Jesus sends including His Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Jesus, (laughs) our Heavenly Father, hallowed be Your name. We love Your name, Lord. We love to shout Your name, Yahweh. We thank You that we have the freedom to discover and proclaim Your name. We love You, Father. We submit to you as sovereign creator. And you, Father, as the sender of Jesus. And yet you are one with Jesus. We cannot separate you because you're one. And we see all kinds of evidence of that in Scripture. And we thank you, Jesus, that we get to know you in a personal, gnosco, experiential, even kind of way based on Scripture, Lord. And we thank you that we get to know you. We desire to know you more. And we thank you for the precious gift of your Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Jesus. Lord, could you just help us to be able to to start to think and maybe even ask this question of ourselves, have we intentionally or unintentionally kind of separated out one person of the Trinity. In your precious name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.